Volume Two, Chapter Three of Celestina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Celestina by Charlotte Turner Smith. Volume Two, Chapter Three. Mr. Thorold who was informed that Celestina had received letters from Willoughby, felt a true friendly impatience to know their contents, but feeling also how much his lovely guest must in any event be agitated, he not only forbore to intrude upon her with any inquiries himself, but in order that she might not suffer even from the looks of his family, which he knew could not fail to express solicitude arising from less generous motives, he sent her up a note to her own apartment, in which he begged she would not come down to dinner, to put herself, through form, into any situation that might be in any degree painful. This exemption was particularly gratifying to her, as the younger Thorold was this day expected at dinner, and was to remain at home for some weeks, and his elder brother, a captain in the army, who had been some time in Ireland, was to meet him in the evening. Celestina was unfit for company, and above all the company of strangers, and again she regretted that in the first unsettled tumult of her spirits she had agreed to Mr. Thorold's proposal, instead of going back to the lodgings she had formerly inhabited. She was now, however, compelled to remain where she was, till she could determine, with the advice of Mr. Thorold, whither to go. She thought it probable that he might wish her to remain with him, but to this, except his friendly regard for her, and the advantage of being near Cathcart and Jessie, she had no inducement, and wherever she was, she determined it should not be as a mere visitor for any length of time, but that she would pay for her board. Again the quiet and liberty of her cottage on the heath recurred to her, but when she enjoyed that quiet, her heart had not undergone those vicissitudes of happiness and misery which had now, she greatly feared, excluded tranquillity from her bosom for ever. What had then afforded her a species of melancholy pleasure, the distant view of a spot in Alverston Park, would now serve only to render her more unhappy and to encourage that tendency to repine, which her reason told her she should, both on Willoughby's account and her own, rather resolve to conquer than endeavour to indulge. She believed, however, that if once some resolution was formed as to her future residence, she should be easier herself and be better able to satisfy Willoughby. To this subject, therefore, she turned her thoughts, and examined with a heavy heart several different plans that offered themselves to her mind. Nothing could be more comfortless than her reflections. She was not only an orphan and a stranger in England, but knew not whether there was in the world any being whose protection she had the remotest right to claim. Lady Molyneux had never written to her since their separation, and even if Willoughby should approve of her again seeking the protection of his sister, which she had great reason to doubt, she knew not whether Matilda and her husband would receive her, and from that want of heart 
she had too often discovered in them both, she could not think of making the experiment. She had no intimacy with any other person, for though many of the families she had been accustomed to visit while Mrs. Willoughby lived had daughters who had cultivated an acquaintance with her, she had already seen enough of the general conduct of the world to know that she should now be no longer an acceptable guest, and that an individual to whom court is made assiduously, while shining as an equal among fashionable circles, is soon forgotten, or if remembered, despised, when those adventitious advantages surround her no longer. She had heard from Vavasour, for Willoughby himself had always carefully avoided the subject, that the sudden desertion of Miss Fitzhaman, to whom Willoughby was supposed to be so firmly engaged, and his resolution of marrying his mother's adopted daughter, had been very much talked of in the extensive circle who were connected or acquainted with the family. She could not doubt but their sudden separation on the very eve of their marriage was as generally known, and had she found any temptation to return to the society she had quitted, this painful certainty, the prying curiosity that would be excited, and the malicious conjecture that would be made, would effectually have counteracted it. Towards evening she found sufficient courage to entreat Mr. Thorold's attention for half an hour. He came to her immediately, and she put into his hands the letter she had received from Willoughby. He read it with great attention, and as it should seem with great concern, and then, in the expressive manner that was usual with him, gave it back to her without speaking. Benevolence and pity were now visible in his features, which were masculine, strong, and frequently stern. But Celestina was hardly enough accustomed to him to understand his silence completely. "'You see, dear sir,' said she timidly, "'you see that Willoughby refers me to you, and I would very fain avail myself of the benefit of your advice.' "'It is always at your service,' replied Mr. Thorold. "'But on what occasion do you now ask it?' "'I wish to know,' replied she, with still greater hesitation, "'what you think it advisable for me to do, "'where you think I ought to settle myself.' "'I am sorry,' answered he, "'you think it so soon necessary to turn your thoughts that way. "'I hoped that you would stay here at least for some weeks, "'and really,' I can give you no other advice than to do so. The mystery, which I cannot develop, may by that time be removed, and we shall have time not only to hear more of Willoughby. But if nothing occurs on his part to re-establish you at Alveston, to cast about for a proper and permanent situation for you. Think no more, therefore, my dear ward, for such I consider you, of leaving us at present, and rather exert your admirable understanding in quieting your spirits, and in acquiring fortitude to bear adversity and evil, if they should be finally your portion, or equality of temper to enjoy, what it is more difficult to enjoy well, happiness and prosperity. Celestina would now have spoken of the inconvenience to which so long a visit might put his family, and the little claim she had to such unusual kindness from him and Mrs. Thorold. 
but he suffered her not to continue these apologies, seemed little pleased that she attempted to make them. And then, reassuming his good humour, he left her, bidding her try to recover her looks, and to dismiss as much as she could from her mind the distressing events of the last ten days. Celestina now found that she could not immediately remove without offending the friend to whom Willoughby had recommended her, and prepared, since she could not be indulged with solitude, to mix with his family, and be as little as possible a weight on those who, whatever might be their good humour, could not be expected to enter into her sorrows. The next morning, therefore, at breakfast, she joined Mrs. Thorold, her daughter, and her two sons, to both of whom she was immediately introduced, and from whose scrutinising looks she sought refuge in talking with forced cheerfulness to Arabella. Captain Thorold was the eldest of the family, and Montague the youngest. The former of these young men had been adopted by his uncle, who, after a life passed in the army, had died a general officer at a very advanced age, and had left his nephew his whole fortune, which was near fifteen hundred a year, after the death of his wife, who surviving him only a twelve-month, Captain Thorold had now been some time in possession of his estate, and of a considerable sum of money. But accustomed from his infancy to the unsettled life of a soldier, he still continued it from habit and choice, and though his father and his family were very solicitous to have him marry and settle near them, he seemed to have no inclination to resign his freedom for the pleasures of domestic society. Novelty and amusement were his pursuits, and his fortune gave him the power to indulge himself. He had what is generally called a very handsome person, but without his military air his figure would have been rather esteemed clumsy than graceful. He had lived much among the circles who give the ton, dressed well, and had that sort of understanding which recommended him to general society, and particularly to that of the ladies, with whom he was an almost universal favourite, and who had agreed to call him the handsome Thorold, even before he became possessed of a fortune, which in the opinion of most of the bells at country quarters, and still more in the opinion of their mothers, more than redoubled his attractions. Thus spoiled from his first entrance into life, he had learned to consider himself as irresistible, and supposed every woman he saw his own, if he chose to take the trouble of securing her. His air and manner were tinctured with the consequence he derived from this persuasion, and from having indulged himself in the cruel vanity of extensive conquest, he was incapable of any lasting or serious attachment. At the first public meeting at any town he happened to be quartered at, he elected some goddess of the day. With her he danced, he walked, he rode, he coquetted, and by studied looks and tender speeches soon persuaded the inexperienced girl that she had secured in her chains the handsome Thorold. The delusion of the young woman herself, and the envy of the contemporary bells, sometimes lasted till the removal of the corps to another station, when he took a cold farewell, and left her to suffer all the pain of disappointed love and mortified vanity. 
but he not unfrequently indulged himself in witnessing the distress this wanton folly inflicted, and after some days of attention so marked and unequivocal as to give the lady reason to suppose an absolute declaration of his passion was certainly to be expected, he suddenly broke off the acquaintance, pretended to forget their intimacy, bowed to her when they met with the air of a stranger, and beginning the same career with some other pretty girl of the place, he affected to treat with disdain and wonder the reports he had himself raised of his permanent attachment to the first lady, and laughed with her rival at the melancholy moping looks or glances of angry disappointment of the deserted beauty, declaring himself amazed at her having the vanity to suppose him serious, because he had shown her a few trifling attentions, which meant nothing. This conduct of his son had given Mr. Thorold great uneasiness a few years before, but lately, as he had been in Ireland, and in very distant quarters, his father had heard no more of it, and flattered himself that now, at near thirty, this unsettled temper and unjustifiable levity would end in his marrying and quitting the army. But though a very fond father to all his children, Mr. Thorold loved the captain less than the others, partly, perhaps, because he was so early removed from him and rendered independent of his care, and partly because his temper and disposition resembled not his own. While Mrs. Thorold doted on her eldest son, whose figure and fortune gratified her vanity, and whom she thought no young woman could possibly deserve, unless she possessed at once fortune, beauty, and fashion. Montague Thorold, who was but just turned of one and twenty, and was designed by his father for the church, was as modest and unassuming as his brother was arrogant and pretending. He was a very good scholar, with a passion for poetry, and was just of the age to be in love with every handsome woman he saw and without having the courage to speak to any of them in prose, he celebrated his divinities in verse, and sighed forth his tender sentiments in sonnets and elegies, which enriched the magazines, and now and then the public prints, under the fictitious names of Alfonso or Lysimachus. Such were the two young men who were now added to the tea-table of Mrs. Thorold, where all the family were assembled, except Mr. Thorold himself, who always breakfasted early, and then went out to his farm, or among his parishioners. Mrs. Thorold had told her sons that a young lady was visiting at the house, whose history she had given them in shorthand, describing her as a dependent on the late Mrs. Willoughby, whom her son had very simply intended to marry at Alveston, but the evening before the appointed wedding day, had broken off the match, from prudential motives, as she supposed, and by the advice of some of his friends who had come down from London. This was the idea Mrs. Thorold had herself conceived of the affair, and she had no means of being undeceived, for Mr. Thorold, who knew that with her a command was better than an argument, and whose authority was pretty firmly established, had ordered her positively to ask no questions of his guest, and had peremptorily refused to answer those she put to himself. 
She obeyed, but not without many murmurs, but knowing that Mr. Thorold would be much disobliged by her refusal to entertain Celestina with kindness, had put a restraint upon herself, and showed her hitherto much civility, though not without many complaints to Arabella, when they were alone, of her father's absurdity in forcing people into the family, and refusing even to satisfy her who and what they were, or what claim they had to the kindness he exacted for them. From his mother's sketch of their visitor the evening before, Captain Thorold had very little curiosity to see her, and Montague, whose heart was in one of its most violent paroxysms of love for the fair daughter of an attorney at Henley, with whom he became acquainted about a fortnight before, was occupied in composing an elegy on absence, and thought he could with indifference have beheld at that period Helen herself. He had inquired of his mother and sister if their guest was handsome. Mrs. Thorold answered, No, not at all handsome, in my opinion, and Arabella said, Yes, surely, Mamma, she is rather pretty-ish. On her entering the room, however, both the gentlemen were instantly of an opinion very different from that of their mother and their sister. Yet Celestina had not now that dazzling complexion, or that animated countenance, which were once so dangerous to behold. She was pale and languid. Her eyes had all their softness, but their lustre was diminished, and the enchanting sweetness which used to play about her mouth was now supplied by a melancholy smile, the effect of a faint effort to conceal the anguish of the heart. Such as she now appeared, however, the captain thought her very lovely, and Montague almost instantly forgot the nymph for whom he had been dying in song all the morning, and saw in the interesting languor of Celestina, in her faded cheek and downcast eyes, a sentimental effect, which none of the fair creatures whom he had celebrated had ever so eminently possessed. But if such were his sentiments before she spoke, his admiration arose to extravagance when, after breakfast, his sister engaged her in a walk in which the two gentlemen attended them, and when he found that her mind corresponded with the elegance of her form, that she was very well read, had a taste for poetry, and understood Italian, of which he was enthusiastically fond. Captain Thorold, on whom these advantages made less impression, was not quite pleased during this walk with the unusual talkativeness of his brother, who generally suffered him to take the lead in conversation. He now attempted to put by him two or three times, and to relate anecdotes of people in high life, of what General Wallace said to him at Dublin Castle upon his introduction to the Duchess of... and of a bon mot of Lady Mary Marsden's at supper one evening. But Celestina, who cared nothing about the General, the Duchess, or Lady Mary, let the conversation drop without expressing any pleasure in it and again lent her attention to Montague, who desired her to correct his accent while he repeated, O primavera, gioventu del anno. Celestina modestly assured him she was incapable of correcting him, but he besought her so earnestly to recite the lines to him, that she inconsiderately attempted it, 
and in the most enchanting accents began o primavera gioventù dall'anno bella madre di fiori derbe novelle e di novelli amori tu torni ben ma teco non tornano i serini e fortunati di delle mie giogi the cruel remembrance that now pressed upon her heart made her voice tremble and gave it additional tenderness she tried to recover it and going into a lower tone went on with tu torni ben tu torni ma teco altro non torna che del perduto mio caro tesoro lo rimembranza misera e dolente she could go no farther the tears were in her eyes but she tried to smile and to stifle the deep sigh that was rising as she said i cannot go on for really i remember no more the young man fascinated by her manner and her voice now recollected with reluctance recollected that these seducing tones were drawn forth by the reality of those sufferings the poet described he looked at her in silence and as he marked the sad and pensive expression that remained on her countenance that astonishment which he had hardly time to feel before arose he thought it impossible that mr willoughby having the power to marry such a woman and having once formed the resolution to do so should by any persuasions be diverted from his purpose and he found that in the single hour he had been with her he admired her enough to sacrifice everything to her were it possible that her regard could be transferred to him the improbability that it ever could struck him forcibly and rendered him as silent as celestina herself while the captain who had now an opportunity of engrossing her attention rallied her on being so much affected i have no notion now said he of giving way to those sorts of things i love gay and cheerful poetry one is tired of weeping at the fictitious misery of fictitious persons i remember being some time ago at a conversation in dublin where we talked of the fashionable indifference which everybody has now for tragedy and my friend hargrave who has written you know several things himself was condemning it as the certain marks of the vitiated taste and imbecility of the age i took up the argument on the other side and lady mary marsden thought as i did indeed everybody present allowed that it was quite absurd to go to a play which is intended to amuse and entertain only to be made uneasy she agreed with me that people have concerns enough in real life and need not go seek it in way of diversion and did her ladyship inquired montague thorold give no other reasons i think those are very good reasons replied the captain they might be so answered his brother for a woman of fashion but i am persuaded literary people and people of taste think quite otherwise and the ancients whose superior intellectual advantages are not to be disputed oh prithee montague interrupted the captain don't run us down with college cant oh, i'm talking of the world we live in 
and the opinions of people who lived two thousand years ago are no more in question now than their dresses he then went on to retail other opinions of lady mary marsden who was as it seemed the oracle of the hour in the society he had just left celestina heard him with apparent attention but in truth without knowing what he said his brother rendered impatient by being interrupted in his conversation with her walked away and arabella who loved to hear descriptions of fine people and to attend to fashionable conversations kept up the dialogue till the end of their walk when celestina went to her own room arabella to her dressing-table and the captain finding his mother at work in the parlour thought he had a right to ask her a few questions about celestina in return for the perpetual tone of interrogation she had kept up towards him ever since his arrival to mrs thorold the next gratification to that of asking questions was the pleasure of answering them she told her son therefore not only all she knew but invented answers on some points which she only guessed at and he understood from her information that celestina had been very partial to willoughby and so strong was this partiality described that he began to doubt whether the proposed marriage had not been a mere finesse to throw her off her guard and get her wholly into his power and whether his abrupt departure had not been in consequence of the success of this disingenuous but not unprecedented method of proceeding captain thorold had seen willoughby frequently in his last visit at home and knew that he had every advantage which a fine person and engaging manners could give him he was well acquainted with the society among which he lived and had heard some of them but particularly vavasour described as being very gay and unprincipled he had therefore little difficulty in supposing that willoughby resembled those with whom he associated and that celestina had been the victim of those arts which he supposed no man ever scrupled to practise where the object was so well worth the trouble especially one so unprotected as she was where no rigid father was in the way to obstruct their designs or chamon like brother to avenge the wrong they might commit willoughby now however seemed quite out of the question and he doubted not but that after a short interval given to sentimental regret on the loss of a first lover she would listen to other vows and encourage the passion which he thought it might be very amusing to entertain her with without meaning however to offer himself to fill such engagements as willoughby had broken while he meditated on this project he could not help smiling at the gullibility of his father who had thus he thought taken into his protection and made the companion of his wife and daughter the deserted mistress of willoughby End of chapter three